What can organizations do to flourish? What can companies learn from positive psychology, the science of happiness, that can help them become better, more engaging, and more energizing? Today we're joined by a world-leading expert in the field of positive organizations, and she will help us focus on what we can do to bring more happiness to life in our home, workplace, and in our community. A graduate of the Masters in Applied Positive Psychology at the University of Pennsylvania, she teaches positive psychology at the University of Toronto and University of Texas. Her work has been featured in Forbes, Huffington Post, Live Happy Magazine, Psychology Today, Toronto Sun, to name a few. She's a sought-after speaker, author, and the founder and president of the Canadian Positive Psychology Association. It is with much anticipation that I welcome Louisa Jewell. Welcome, Louisa. So great to have you here. I'm just thrilled to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me. So you work with organizations. How can you help organizations flourish? Well, when I think about flourishing organizations, I think of ones that are not only performing well or outperforming in their markets, but also ones that are contributing to their communities, ones that are not doing harm to their communities and allowing for flourishing communities, but also where their employees are flourishing. Their employees love coming to work. They're highly engaged. They're performing really well, but they also enjoy high levels of well-being. So that's when I picture uh, a flourishing organization, that's what I picture. And I think that an organization like that really requires a group of employees that are intrinsically motivated. You know, they come to work willfully. They want to work the extra hour every day. Nobody has to be giving them a carrot or a stick uh, in order for them to be able to do well and want to really allow the organization to succeed in so many ways. So, so, so you're looking at an organization as being responsible, not just for the shareholders, but for the stakeholders, much more broadly defined. The employees, the community. So how, what do you do? How do you create the conditions that will allow these employees to be intrinsically motivated, to be engaged? Yeah, well, so when you take a look at the research on intrinsic motivation, uh, one of the really key personal needs that we have is that of mastery. We want to feel competent. We want to feel that we are good at things. We want to feel that we are learning and growing and always getting better and performing well. And when I think about that component of mastery or competency, I always think about the work of Albert Bandura on self-efficacy. And I think a lot of organizations really don't understand the science or the psychology behind how to build self-efficacy. And I think it's so important to be building self-efficacy with employees. And that is really, self-efficacy really is the belief that you can be successful in any given situation. And so it's not so much about uh, building skills all the time, it's also about building beliefs. and. You know, you talked about stories this morning. Can I share a story with you? I had kind of an aha moment about this. And, you know, many, many years ago, sort of a past lifetime, I was working in an employment resource center and we had taken a number of women who had been out of the workforce for many, many years 
and we were teaching them new technology skills and new career skills on how to find work after being out of work for so long. And there was one woman, I'll call her Susan to protect her privacy, uh, but she was amazing. Learned the technology so quickly, so, and, and also very, uh, very good in terms of her communication skills, got along with everybody, mm. helped everybody else. I mean, she was my star student. And then we sat down, we had put together her resume to send it out to employers. And I said, so Susan, are you ready to do this? And she said, I'm not sending out my resume. Mm -hmm. She said, why would I do that? Even if I get the job, they're just gonna think I'm an idiot. And it was the moment, that moment that I thought, so here's somebody who's highly talented, who really has no idea that they're highly talented. So there was this paradox, there was this mismatch between what was her reality and what she believed in her head. Now what she believed in her head was stopping all of the behaviors necessary for her to be successful. If you can't send out resumes, you can't find a job. And so that's when I really started to realize that beliefs and what we think in our mind is so important. So organizations and leaders need to think about not only building the skill set of their employees, but also building their beliefs around their, their self-confidence. Self yes, we could call it self, you know, general self-confidence, or you know, I I kind of consider self-efficacy to be the courage to act. It's that kind of in that moment, how do I get the, that courage to be able to behave in the way that I need to be successful, whether I'm fearful or not? Mm. Um, I, I define courage as not about not having fear, but about having fear and going ahead anyway. Yes. So, so, so you would equate courage with uh, self-efficacy. Yes, yes, because I think that if, you know, when you, when you are feeling high self-efficacy, you're able to go into something feeling calm enough to know that I don't know what the outcome will be, but I feel confident enough in what I know that I will be able to get through it no matter what the outcome is. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I clearly see how, how, how this has an impact on individual success added up. Uh, collective or organizational success. Nathaniel Brandon talks about how self-concept is destiny. You know, what you believe is actually what, what you ultimately become, um, within constraints, of course. The, the question is, how do you increase people's self-confidence? How do you increase their self-efficacy? Well, so the few ways that when I work with organizations, and one of the first ways really is to introduce this whole idea of a focus on strengths. So organizations are so deficit focused. I mean, we live in the world of strengths, but then you go out there <laughs> into mm -hmm. these organizations and they are so holding on to this idea that I have to tell this person what is wrong with them because that's the only way they're gonna get better. And so, so introducing this idea of, I don't mean to ignore weaknesses, but to have a focus on strengths. How can you uh, identify what people's strengths are? How can you identify their talent strengths, their character strengths, many different kinds of personality strengths? And then how do you leverage those strengths? You can even use those strengths to help overcome a weakness. Mm. So there's, there's having this strengths focus, I think, when 
people feel strengths-based when they hear strengths-based feedback, for example, they feel more empowered. Uh, I remember I was doing uh, working with a presentation coach, and I guess I wasn't smiling enough when I was doing my presentation, but she didn't say, oh, you're not smiling enough. She said, Louisa, when you smile, you light up the room. Mm. Do it more. That's Lovely. just, it's just a little nuance, but when she said that, I remember that. To that, to that was many years ago. I still remember that piece of feedback. So, if I'm a manager, you're telling me to get my employees as well as or my staff and myself to go through the strength finders test. Well, so there's and to also look for strengths such as in your smile or in the way you carry yourself. Yeah, so I think that, you know, StrengthsFinder is certainly a great tool. There's also the VIA character strengths, I think, are, can be very, very powerful because, and there was a, a video that I saw recently of a woman who was talking about how everyone was also, uh, what, what were they, everyone was always telling her and giving her feedback on who she was and what she was good at. And it wasn't until she looked at the VIA character strengths that she realized wait, this is really me. This is what I feel I am good at. And it was amazingly empowering. And I find with leaders too, if they want to be authentic leaders, they need to tap into what they feel is their approach to leadership. And I think via character strengths can really do that, sort of the how we like to do things. And so I think, you know, these tools can be very helpful, but also, you know, when somebody does something, to be able to do strength spotting in the moment. It's not just about, let's just give feedback at performance review time. You know, it's so important when somebody, and I think back to the research on the fixed versus the growth mindset, Carol Dweck's work, that when people come in not to say, oh, you're a rock star, and that was great work, and you know, you're a superstar, but to be able to say, you know, today you did such a good job, and here's what I saw. I saw you, you had such amazing communication skills with your customers, you really connect with them, and this is how you did it. And then you did this over here, and I think when people hear those strengths, and I've had so many people, when I give them strengths-based feedback, they say, oh, I did that, really? Mm -hmm. I think we assume when people are good at things that they know they why know. they're good, and they don't. They yeah. don't. Always. We're actually better at uh, telling our weaknesses than telling our strengths. So exactly. you're saying, as a manager, I can help my employees become um, more uh, more aware yes. of what they're good at. So, yes. so that, that's one way of raising yeah. the uh, self-efficacy yes. in my organization. What, what's another thing that I, as a manager, can do? Well, so another thing you can do is make it safe to fail. And, you know, nobody wants to hear in organizations that you're failing. And recently, uh, I took a group of executive women, and they said, you know, Louisa, we have this whole new push now for failing fast. Mm -hmm. You know, let's fail this whole idea of, you know, failing fast. And, uh, and I said, you know, this idea, scares the living bejesus out of me because um, who wants to fail? And in front of all of your peers, if you take a look at all of the research on stress, really the last thing you want to do in terms of your human body and the whole biology, you don't want to fail. It, it's sort of, so you need to understand that failure is scary, even, even at an embodied level. 
And then how do you overcome that? And I think we talked about how, how can you fail well and how can you allow that failure to take place within your organization? Um, and so a few ways, you know, um, Dyson, the vacuum cleaner, uh, James Dyson, who invented the bagless vacuum cleaner, he failed over 5,000 times to finally come up with his final prototype. And he now has embedded this whole idea of failure within his organization. And I was reading an article the other day where he actually had a product that had failed miserably, but they learned so much about certain components that they actually use it as a prototype and all of their new engineers that come through actually learn about this mm. product because they learned so much about it, even though it had failed. And so he has created this environment that makes it safe to mm. fail. The permission to fail. And, and when you think about the self, if I tie it back to the self-efficacy research, the best way to learn and grow is through what we call a performance experience. And so that is by going and trying and then feeling that you've made some progress, feeling that you have pushed the envelope. And then that changes our beliefs because we say, I did it, so therefore, I must know this, I must be good at this or have some talent in this. It shifts our beliefs when we try it. Mm -hmm. But if we are too fearful to fail, if there's just punishment and demotions and constant criticism, we're never gonna go and try that thing. So there has to be different ways that you can fail well within an organization and make it safe to fail. Yeah, it reminds me of, uh, of an article that came out recently uh, research done by Google identifying that the most uh, important component of successful creative teams was their psychological safety. Psychological yes. safety being being free, uh, being um, giving themselves the permission to to fail, not being afraid of taking risks and putting themselves on the line. Exactly. And we also look at historical research by Dean Simonton from UC Davis who shows that the most uh, successful artists and scientists throughout history were also the ones who failed the most times. Yes, exactly. So. I think we, I think if organizations that can learn from failure, it's not just about failing well, it's also what did we learn from that? Mm. And how can we incorporate that learning without recrimination? Yes. Uh, and, and use that again, I think that's very important. Great, so we have strengths, we have um, uh, the willingness, the, the safety to fail, how else can I, as a manager, increase self-efficacy? Well, one thing that I always teach, and this is more of an internal, personal thing for employees, but it's about um, being self-compassionate. And if you think about the research on self-compassion, we often think, oh, I, I can't be good to myself. I always have to be beating myself up. So after every single failure or disappointment or I didn't do very well, uh, I always have to be in my mind. The mind chatter is all about, you know, you're terrible, how embarrassing, what an idiot. You know, this is the kind of self-talk that's going on mm -hmm. in your mind. 
And I think if leaders can listen into what are people saying after a failure and help them reframe it to something that's more self-compassionate. We always think we have to be hard on ourselves. In fact, the research on self-compassion shows the opposite is true. That in fact, people who are very high in self-compassion actually perform better. And so in Kristen Neff, I did an interview with Kristen Neff, who's a leading researcher in the area of self-compassion. And she said, what, what kind of coach do you want to come home to, you know, in your mind? Is it that self-compassionate coach that says, it's okay? You know what? You, you did okay. Don't worry about it. You actually did pretty good. Okay, so you weren't perfect over here. You can work on that. So you can still be a constructive self-criticizer, but you don't have to do the beating up part. Mm -hmm. You don't have to be calling yourself an idiot or thinking about it. Or And women do this. This is a, more of a problem for women, this idea of rumination, which is you think about it over and over and over again. And we know from the work of Susan Nolan Huxima uh, from Yale um, many years ago that, that um, you know, rumination can be s such a... Uh, it, it can really be a contributor to depression for, for women. And so we have to stop this. We have to stop these uh, this negative self-talk because the more you can be more positive, the more you can be that positive, constructive coach in your mind when something happens, the more you're, you're going to recover quicker. You're going to think about, okay, how can I be better? You're going to take the information, incorporate it again. You're going to have more positive mental energy to go into the next task. Because when you're actually ruminating, it then follows you to your next performance, right? And then you're going into a performance and it's going to just allow you to fail again. Right, you know, when you were talking, I was thinking about something that the Dalai Lama often speaks about, which is the word for compassion in, in Tibetan, and the word is tsewe. And he says that in Tibetan, the word has two meanings. It means compassion for self and compassion for others. Whereas in the West, when we talk about compassion, we automatically go compassion uh, outwards rather than, than inwards. So, so I think that, that that's, that's critical, this idea of self-compassion. But there are two questions that, that come to mind. First of all, how do I, how do I create more self-compassion in myself? Do I just tell myself, be more compassionate? Do I stop that negative self-talk? So that's my first question. The second question is, how do I help others create more self-compassion? Well, I think first of all, to help your, your own, to increase your own self-compassion. You know, Kristen Neff refers to the three elements of self-compassion. And the first one really is to have awareness, you know, to be aware of your own suffering. To be able to say, so something has happened all of a sudden and you find yourself in a very difficult situation, often we just get right into solution mode. As opposed to stopping and saying, you know what, this is hard. What I'm going through is hard. Having some uh, awareness that of your own suffering and then being able to feel the feelings that you need to, to feel, the, this permission to be human. Permission to be human and say, you know, I, I need to cry right now because I'm sad about this and it's appropriate for me to be sad. And the second one really is to say kind things to yourself and to be your best, most compassionate friend and follow you around. I used to have my worst enemy following me around all the time, mm -hmm. everywhere I went, saying horrible things to myself. And I had this aha moment where I actually stopped and heard 
what I was saying, you know, these things are so automatic. Sometimes you don't even realize what's going on in your head. And I, and I thought, you know, if my husband spoke to me like that, if my friend spoke to me, if anybody spoke to me like they, they would have been kicked to the curb <laughs> years ago. And yet, why do I? I thought, who the hell do you think you are, Louisa, <laughs> speaking to yourself like that? And I thought, no more. Now I'm going to have my best friend. And now I have my best friend following me around wherever I go saying, you know, you did a good job there. Look, you just got some good feedback there. Wait, okay, that wasn't your best performance, but it's fine. Or no, your jeans, you know, your butt looks good in those jeans. Don't <laughs> worry, you're fine, you know. The, you know, this is who I have following me around. And it's a real gift. And that starts with awareness is to stop and say, what am I? What am I actually saying? Some people need to write it down. And once you start to realize that and then you replace it with that. Wow. So, so it's being a friend to yourself. It's like, how would I talk to my friend, a friend whom I'm honest to and open with? and want to help, exactly. and at the same time, compassionate That's and right. friendly. That's right. To ask yourself, what would my best friend say to me mm. right now? Yes, exactly. Yeah. And, and the, the third, sorry, just to get to the third element, uh, Kristen Neff talks about this understanding that this is the human experience. You know, that when you fail, guess what? It's normal. <laughs> or when you make a mistake or when you're not perfect, you know all about uh, the, uh, this idea of perfectionism and how it can, you know, can really challenge us. Uh, and so when you're not perfect, guess what? that's totally normal. Mm -hmm. And to say, and not to beat yourself up, but to say, yeah, I guess I'm just a human being mm -hmm. like, like everybody else. And I'm not alone. Exactly, I'm not alone. Now the second part of your question, you asked how can leaders do this within organizations? And this is listening in for, uh, you know, for when people are, are saying things like this. So, you know, something has happened and the person says, oh my gosh, I'm such an idiot, how could I have, you know, they sometimes can verbalize these things. And for a leader to challenge that and say, you know what, you're, you're not an idiot. You know, you are very smart, you're very intelligent the way you set this up. I think maybe where uh, you could, it went wrong was here, you know, and so let's work on that piece, but you're not an idiot. You know, and to be able to challenge that thinking when you hear it. I heard a woman the other day who said, oh, somebody called me a, a genius, but oh, I, I couldn't, you know, I couldn't accept that. And I said, oh, that's interesting. Tell me about that. So it was, you know, challenging this idea of why, why can't we be, maybe we are, maybe you are a genius mm -hmm. in that area and to allow yourself to receive these things. Yeah. So being a friend to... Again, yes. My staff, my colleagues. Absolutely. I, you know, I think people do not value this idea of positive relationships as much. They think, let's focus on the task and let's, you know, they kind of dehumanize the work environment. And we're all human beings. We all have feelings. And in order to maintain positive relationships, we need to be good and kind and compassionate to each other. And it's this whole idea of, of being able to increase our own positivity ratios within the organization by having good relationships. And, you know, I was speaking uh, recently about having a difficult conversation. We never want to do that. We never want to actually sit down with someone and say, how can we work? This is not working. How can we work better mm -hmm. together? And we're so afraid to do that. But it's so important 
to have good positive relationships because when you're working with friends, it's easier to fail. Mm -hmm. It's easier to be yourself and be authentic. Mm -hmm. And of course, when you are authentic, when you, when you are real, through that you increase your self-efficacy and then it becomes an, an upward spiral of growth, self-efficacy, higher effectiveness, more self-efficacy and mastery and so on and so on. And I guess that's how we create flourishing organizations. Yes, absolutely. Thank you very much for doing this important work. Thank you. Thank you so thank much. You. And thank you for all the work you're doing in the world. I'm so inspired by you. And as I said, you were my, you were my first positive psychology <laughs> teacher. So thank you so much. Thank you. Such a gift. Thank you. And thank you all for watching Happier TV. Please join us for more interviews, reflections, questions and answers, and more. Take care.